I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Cybersecurity Interviews. This is a special episode where my guests actually turn the mics and spotlight on me. In this episode, I speak with Christopher Wasserman and Ricky Bruman, both governance and e-discovery experts that wanted to get a deeper knowledge about cybersecurity. We discuss how folks in the litigation and e-discovery world can help, complement, and even jump ship into cybersecurity. Additionally, we discuss what's similar and different and how organizations respond to government inquiries, data breaches, and litigation requests. Chris brings over 12 years of experience in his role as Vice President and Senior Consultant at D4. Chris oversees a team of e-discovery engineers and provides technical expertise and guidance to clients to develop defensible, cost-effective solutions that involve managing data that might be used as evidence. Ricky is a litigation support manager at Saul Ewing, Arnstein, and Lair. In this capacity, he consults with clients on best practices for information governance and electronic discovery and manages all phases of the EDRM for litigation matters. Ricky is also a member of ILTA's Program Planning Council. I hope you enjoy this special episode of Cybersecurity Interviews. Chris and Ricky, welcome to Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you guys doing today? Doing good. Doing real good. Thanks for having us, Doug. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, I'm glad we're able to kind of change this format where uh, instead of me doing the interviews, we're kind of doing it a little bit reverse. So uh, why don't you guys take a moment to kind of introduce yourselves, kind of let the listeners know who you guys are, and uh, kind of drive from there. Well, a man that needs no introduction, Ricky Bruman. Step up to the mic. Hey, how are you guys doing? Um, so great to be here, Doug. Thank you for having us on the show. I'm Ricky Perlman. I'm a litigation support project manager at Saul Ewing, Arnstein and Lear. It's a law firm and mainly on the Eastern coast and moving into the Midwest. Um, I work with case teams in electronic discovery and litigation support. I'm in-house. So what I do is work with the clients on a day-to-day with their information governance and electronic discovery needs. Chris, what are you up to these days? I uh, just got, I think, my umpteenth promotion, which is a change in responsibilities or more responsibilities, more work, more hours, same pay. Um, and I get to meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Uh, these days, I am the regional vice president over a team of strategic solution sales reps at Special Counsel slash D4. Now, that doesn't fit on my business card. Um, in a nutshell, I oversee a team of about a dozen different people across uh, the United States and Europe that specialize in spreading the good word about all of the fun and exciting stuff that we're doing in the world of uh, e-discovery, data breach, uh, large-scale attorney review, and specialty data management consulting. Yeah, that for a mouthful. That is a mouthful, but you know, as we got to talking about, you know, when we kind of said, you know, the, the concept for this particular format of this this episode of the podcast was the the idea is that we see there's a huge crossover between things in governance, GRC, e-discovery, lit support, data management, governance, whatever you want to call it. There's there tends to be these these issues that happen and crop up in most people's environments where they either get served a government subpoena, they get breached, they um, get sued. And at some point, they have to figure out what data they had, they have, who's had access to it, and, and be able to kind of quantify that. And so you know, I think it's it's an interesting cross-section of skills that we're seeing now in a lot of different, that we're kind of silo disciplines that are now starting to kind of come together. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and thank, thank God it's happening because... Um, Anyone who's been in e-discovery for as long as I have is, is starting to get uh, a little punch drunk looking at the same same challenges over and over again. Um, it is kind of cool, though, uh, for, for me to work with data breach attorneys who've never really leveraged a structured discovery, data discovery workflow. And it is. It's starting to breach or branch out into all these different areas. But at the end of the day, we're 
still effectively using the discovery reference model to map out a workflow, identify where the data is, who has it, uh, find a way to collect it. I mean, some of the levers that we're pulling are we're pulling them in new directions for new reasons, but at the end of the day, we're we're definitely using electronic discovery tools and disciplines and tool and workflows that we've never actually pointed at the cyber world before. So for where I've been sitting, and, and really I think the point of this podcast was to kind of turn the microphone back at you a little bit, Doug. I know you're you're usually on one side of the camera asking the questions, but you're typically a wealth of knowledge, especially for guys like Ricky and I who are who have been, you know, sort of siloed in the e-discovery realm, largely in litigation and legal support. Uh, and it's just now we're starting to see some overlaps. We were hoping to, one, kind of pick your brain because we know that people from the e-discovery space are going to start listening to this podcast now because Ricky and I draw such a massive fan base. Um, but two, also, <laughs> um, yeah, dozens of listeners. I think we hit double digits last time. The two of us double, double digits, definitely. Double digits. Um, but basically what we're looking to do is hopefully get some insights from you, Doug, about areas where you're seeing some overlap. You're, you're probably knee deep in it while Ricky and I have been dipping our toes into the shallow end of the cyber world. And, uh, hopefully at the same time, we can shed some light on some of the tools and some of the fancy tips and tricks that we can offer to the cyber world, just because we've been mired with the same challenge that's just now starting to present itself in the cyber world and that we built these workflows. We've invented the stuff over a decade uh, to solve some of these challenges. And a lot of these tools aren't being used in the cyber world, especially on the reactive side. I don't know about you, Rick, you have, where you're seeing it from the inside and uh, from internally from the law firm perspective. So you're seeing that yeah. there's a, a lot of new interest in this in data privacy and whatnot yeah i mean you seldom have a client that's going through um, litigation involves heavy discovery that also isn't probably interested in cybersecurity and how they can do a better job of managing their information and also putting in policies and procedures to deal with any data breaches um, so even though you know you're you're in two different industries you're still seeing uh, a lot of synergy between them and I think that, you know, it's breaking down. Um, it's all the same client problems they're dealing with, right? They're trying to protect their information. They're trying to understand what, what happened with information, when it happened, and uh, review the relevant information to, to figure out how to deal with it, either it's litigation or data breach. And, um, you know, it's the same thing, but it's different players. And um, I really just started getting interested in the cyber side of it when I started talking to you and listening to some of Doug's podcasts. I'm like, wow, this sounds super familiar, right? You know, you're dealing with client problems and you're implementing technology-driven solutions to solve those complex problems. And I do see a lot of overlap. And, uh, you know, so I think it's a great idea that we're on this podcast together talking about it. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I, I certainly have a lot of questions for Doug. Um, you know, starting with, you know, Doug, how did you, how did you find yourself where you are today? What's your journey? Well, yeah, it's been an interesting trans transition. You know, certainly it's something where I started as a technologist, you know, I started with computers back in the eighties before there was really an IT industry and, and the ability to actually kind of stake your claim and make a career at it. Uh, and then certainly moved into general IT services, networking and administrative type work, for most of the 90s and in the early 2000s, but always had an interest in security and was always, you know, kind of a hacker and tinker and playing with the, um, uh, you know, the various things that came up in the, the cybersecurity world before, again, there was even cybersecurity, it was just hackers and <laughs> good or bad things that came with that. Um, and then found myself in 2008, really being tapped by somebody in uh, a litigation matter to say, hey, look, can you take an investigation on a computer and testify it? And I said, sure, why not? You know, that sounds interesting. It kind of got me back to my hacker roots of ripping it apart a system and writing this report and ended up being in federal court on it. And it was actually a really cool and fun experience. So I got the chance to, to kind of do that to the other. This is really what I want to be doing. And really kind of, again, early on saw that there was that huge potential for the cross-section of things that were litigation-focused, data security, uh, legal technology. There's a, there a kind of a confluence of all these different things kind of going on. And 
you know, I think only now we're starting to really understand the full convergence of all that, but really started doing more of the, the forensics and, and IR work and testimony work. And then certainly more on the proactive side with doing pen tests and security assessments, but, you know, really kind of gotten to my, this point now in my career where again, it's stepping back, I'm looking at and saying, you know, this, a lot of the skills I learned from the IT side or from the legal side and e-discovery side still play today, even in cybersecurity, because it is, as you said, it's it's dealing with client problems. A lot of times it's understanding the technology and having to dissect it in a way that is uh, explained in non-technical terms for non-technical people and really kind of give those executive summaries. So it's being able to really boil down to the pertinent facts. And so a lot of the skills that I've, I've actually had at my time with dealing with litigation has been very helpful in dealing with CIOs, CTOs, CISOs that you know, I really have to kind of relay a quick amount of information to people who have a short attention span because they only have so much time in a day. So it's been very beneficial. And to that point is now I'm starting to look at as I'm hiring and building practices uh, nationally and even internationally is where to get these talents. And I'm starting to see that there's a huge opportunity of folks that are in the cybersecurity world, I'm sorry, in the e-discovery world and litigation support world. They know the processes, know the flows. They're familiar with some aspects of forensics and e-discovery, but they're able to actually really kind of communicate well, project manage well, communicate to clients well. Those are the key things that we try to look for in cybersecurity. I can teach anybody the technical skills, but a lot of those soft skills become extremely important. And there's a lot of folks that have been in the discovery and litigation support realm that have already honed those skills. So it's they're a great uh, area to tap, and particularly because they already understand a lot of the processes. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, I was going to say, you know, you hit on a really big thing there is the technology skills, you know, they're there, people have them, you can teach them, but the communication skills, dissecting those problems, and then understanding, you know, what the client's objectives are, what the problems are, and how uh, you're going to fix them, and how you're going to communicate that fix to them, and how you're going to meet their needs, really. Um, so those soft skills are, are huge. Um, Chris, what do, what do you think over there? Do you see a lot of people in discovery being viable candidates for uh, a cyber role, whether it be an analyst, project manager, or something of the sort? Are you seeing a migration of talent from one kind of vertical to the next? Well, when we, we get our hands on someone who has those strong soft skills, we cling to them with a death grip. Uh, we'd hate to lose them over to the dark side of, of the dugs of the world and have them train up on cyber. Um, but I think it's in any sort of complex reactive situation. And that's largely where, where I've been personally is, is always on the, the tail end after something, after it's hit the fan. Um, I, I do, obviously most of my career has been on the client facing side. So it's pretty easy to, to echo a lot of what you guys are saying. Um, for those, you know, e-discovery practitioners that might be listening in on this though, for those looking to get, if, assuming they have those soft skills, I think that there's definitely sort of this big black box out there that nobody really knows how to navigate quite yet, um, mainly because the cyber world or just cyber response, data breach, incident response, pen testing, all those things and the acronyms that you were listing off there, I don't know if the people on our side of the, the fence have a good sense of where to kind of get started. Right. If they were interested in this, are we just talking about a Google search and just try to consume as much information as possible? Or if they were to actually, if, assuming they have those soft skills, what tech skills or what areas would you point them in first? I mean, Doug, I think you have something like 13 or 14 different acronyms after your, your title and not really sure what any of them mean, but I'm assuming they have to do with software certifications. Would you say that those are are required for somebody that might be in sort of the, you know, the middle of their career considering a jump or, or trying to find a way to learn what the new tools are, what the utilities are. If you were to send, send someone to sit down in a chair, you know, and get their 10,000 hours in a particular scenario, what would that be? Yeah. The, and, and that's, that's always a great question that comes up to, to folks uh, like myself in the industry you know, it's about certifications and there's, there's different levels. And most of the certifications I have and maintain right now tend to be software and tool agnostic. They're more focused on process and procedure, uh, while still involving a lot of the technical skills, but not any particular tool set, um, which is fine. And there's certainly the, the tool certifications and there's training I still get in that as well. So, you know, 
when it comes down to selecting the certifications, there's a lot of different paths, whether you're going to be in the forensic field and maybe more in forensics or IR. That requires more of that investigative mindset and going into doing deep dive uh, analysis on machines to the type that might be more on the offensive testing side. That would be the security assessment folks and the pen testers and ethical hackers that are really testing and stress testing systems to see where the vulnerabilities lie, how they can be exploited. And so those can be the folks that um, you know do more of that you know, that really ethical hacking. So I always say to people, you know, where, where, where are you kind of getting your pull towards? Are you getting gravitated more towards the investigative side? Or are you getting more towards the security assessment side? And from picking from there, there's definitely some base certifications that you, that you look at. I, you know, I do a lot of work with the SANS Institute and there's some great base certifications like the GSEC or uh, GX certified, uh, was it <laughs> GX security essentials, uh, certification, which basically is a, is a great baseline certification, difficult course, but gives you a lot of information across a lot of areas, both in forensics and the offensive side. And then from there, kind of once you have that foundation is then picking, okay, which path do I want to follow? And then maybe going down some specific forensic analysis courses. Even from there, you can get very specific. You can do things around malware forensics and analysis. You can do things on Macs. You can do specific um, you know, paths along smartphones and mobile devices. So there's a lot of different paths that can go there. Same thing on the security assessment side where you can be more of an auditor. You can be going in and doing, uh, you know, those just more of a high level assessments and, and working with more, uh, you know, just kind of assessing things on a, a broader basis to maybe doing more specific pen testing where you're going in and you're actually trying to exploit things on a web application or a specific server. So it really kind of depends on what you kind of gravitate towards. But I always say for everybody, you know, try to work on some of the base stuff spend a lot of time in your first couple of years getting exposure to a lot of different areas of cybersecurity, cross-training as much as you can. And eventually you'll kind of get the gravitational pull towards the areas that interest you the most. Do you ever have kids? I'm just curious. Do you ever have kids coming straight yeah. out of college, coming to work for you? Yeah, uh, we, we definitely do. We, we have people that are coming out of uh, either four years programs and, and, and information systems to people that are coming out graduate programs that maybe you know, spent seven years going to school, getting a master's in cybersecurity coming right out. The challenges with a lot of those folks, as great as they are, and I, these are some of my best employees, they do come in a little bit green because the challenge we're seeing with a lot of the higher education programs right now is they do teach a lot of theory. Uh, and maybe not enough practical. So it's one of the challenges in the industry right now is finding out how you can almost do apprenticeship programs or journeyman programs where people can get out there even while they're in college and get some more hands-on work. Uh, I work you know, within my organization, we do a lot of internships and work with a lot of people that are you know, in those couple years of college so they can kind of get their hands dirty, doing some casework, client exposure so they know what they're, uh, they're kind of getting into. So what's like, it, I mean, someone fresh out of a four-year computer science background, what's like the first 30 days of their tenure look like underneath your your tyrannical rule? If you will? A rule with an iron fist, yeah. No, a lot of it's, it's, it's going to be, you know, really kind of giving their broad-based assessment skills of where, where I think they're going to go. I mean, a lot of times they don't know. And so it's testing them on certain things. And I, I don't take offense to people that might say, gosh, I don't want to run Nessus or do any kind of vulnerability scans. This makes me sick. But I really love doing maybe um, you know some analysis in one of the forensic programs. Great, I might allow them to quickly get under that way, as opposed to using some of the the security assessment tools and vice versa. It really depends. So I try to really work with them in the first you know couple you know weeks to understand where their interests lie, where their skills lie. As much as I believe in also creating well-rounded security professionals at a certain point, there's diminishing returns and tr trying to make somebody great at everything. That's impossible. So once I get those base skills down, understand is do high levels of concentration on where I think they have particular skills, talents, and interest and concentrate heavily on that and push them down that path as quickly as possible. And Doug, talking about like some of those training courses that you're doing and certifications and um, especially for new hires, do you, you know, with e-discovery software, it's definitely like you spend enough time with it, you get it. Like it's pretty easy. Forensics world, same kind of thing. Like it, you have different configurations and, and settings and stuff that you need to work through, but the software, once you get it, it's, it's pretty easy to use. In the cyber world, I mean, it's such an evolving landscape. What, what does that look like for continuing education and, and trying to stay on top of uh, all the new software that's coming out and all the new tools to fight cybercrime? 
Yeah, it, it's a constant thing. Um, you're, you're always having to be a student in this field and always constantly learning because as soon as you figure out something, something changes. Uh, we've seen it particularly within the cloud environments. Even for myself, where I had a strong set of knowledge in traditional IT, how to plan and build data centers, how to build failover and clustering, and all the stuff that goes into IT planning and support for enterprises uh, and then securing them, a lot of that's changed dramatically and almost had the rug ripped out under us when we moved to a lot of cloud compute. There's still a lot of fundamentals that are there. You still need to know what you have and how to secure it and who has access to it, but there's a lot of elements to it that changed. And so you really have to all of a sudden then say, okay, now we're in a cloud environment. If I'm in Azure or AWS, how am I going to configure support and secure that in a way that's similar to what I would have done on an on-prem? And it's almost learning all over again. There's new interfaces that come with that. There's new scripting uh, languages or, or the ways to interact with those things and different APIs. So it's it's never set, and so you're always in a state of constant learning. Mm-hmm. So you know that's the it's, like it's a good. Data to, yeah, and it's but it's it's a double edged sword, right? It's 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 it, you have to want to have that. You want to have that. You want to have that ability and passion to constantly want to learn. But you can also always jump into the dance any point. There, you know, there's you're it's there's never a point where you jump into it and it's like oh it's too late. You know, the, the things already passed me by because there's always something new. There's always something great to learn, and there's always something else that needs researched. Uh, you know, research done on it. So at no point can you feel left out. Right, right. And you're talking a lot about cloud and everything. A lot of thing, things that I hear in electronic discovery and IBM stuff is like preservation in place, especially if you're in the cloud, right? So not duplicating data by collecting it and bringing it into a new environment only to process it. Why not just kind of preserve it in place? And, and that's, a, that's great and all, right? You know, having a, having a big footprint, though, probably puts a lot of weight on organizations, increases the liability. Um, you see a movement, you know, with Office 365, everything like that. How do you see that changing the nature of um, information governance and cybersecurity at corporations? Um, you know, it's a moving target, obviously, and, and it's getting bigger and bigger each day. And, you know, how is the cloud affecting your, your day-to-day as far as, uh, you know, companies retaining a lot more information? Well, it's, it's interesting because we're seeing a lot of organizations that still have on-prem data storage, on-prem compute, but then moving quite a bit of that to the cloud and almost forgetting that they have almost infinite storage in some, some aspects of that. And so it definitely becomes a challenge, but it's also great, too, because you know now we can start looking at building in those governance tools um, and those security tools that are kind of inherent into those cloud systems or at least come with it. You know, when you buy into something like the the higher SKU levels of the Microsoft Azure stack and a lot of things that come with that, you get a lot of built-in security. You can add an E5 licensing within Tune and get quite a bit of security that would have had to been really hard to deploy and put in place in the past, um, but you can kind of get it, configure it, and, and uh, put it in, I would say, easier. It's not magic. I mean, you still have to do a good amount of configuration, but it's going to allow you to secure and manage that data. And the beauty of that, too, is because if it's in a cloud platform with more open access than it's ever had before, to your point, you know, for things like e-discovery, forensics, and cybersecurity, and DLP, or you know, whatever we want to kind of put that fence around the, the type of data. Again, there's data that exists in an environment. It should have some type of retention. It should have access controls. It should have um, some data disposition around it. It should have uh, the ability to be produced or in, 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 uh, collected in a way that's defensible should be part of an investigation or part of a data breach investigation. So the fact that it all lives in one environment and you can hook into it now is going to be a great shift. So I think we're going to finally see the kind of convergence that we've wanted in technology uh, for a long time when we talk about risk, you know, really governance, risk, and compliance, like the GRC models are really going to be able to be more accessible, I think, to more organizations as we move into the cloud. And more of us that have really sat in kind of independent silos, again, the e-discovery people or the IT people and the cybersecurity people, we're all going to be playing in the same sandbox now and having to work together. And I think it's going to be a benefit to the organizations that um, kind of move into the cloud and start developing the risk management programs that allow that interaction between the departments. So in other words, learn the security and compliance center in O365 and then just build an entire career around it. I would say, it honestly, and I'm, there's no joke, I tell everybody, I was like, learn Office 365, 
PowerShell and just do development ops. Let's just do DevOps all day long and you will have a career in whatever we end up calling cybersecurity, risk, compliance, e-discovery in five years from now as it all changes and morphs into one thing. If you know those fundamental skills, you're, you're going to be ahead of the race. And that's what I'm saying. It's like people like myself have to learn all these new skills now. So it's, it's, a, it's a green field for everybody. But green fields usually mean that that open pasture is really just the wild west. I mean, are you seeing that? You're probably closer. You've got your finger on the pulse a bit more than we would. Um, is it like e-discovery was 10, 15 years ago? Or is it a bit more refined? It, it's a little bit, better. Yeah, it's a little bit different. I mean, I think the the comparisons that we can draw between the cybersecurity world and what we saw in e-discovery, you know, let's say 2006, 2008, and really up until like the last couple of years, has been you had a lot of players in the market trying to do unique set of services, a huge amount of overlap, and then they all started consolidating. And I think that's what we're going to see. I mean, even recently in the you know, first half of 2018, we've seen two um, forensic and dispute litigation companies kind of either get sold off to another another entity, merge. So it's already starting to happen where we're starting to see some of the investigative and forensics groups starting to kind of morph and change. And I think we're going to see them get sucked up into other organizations. And we're going to continue to see that because, again, more and more as we kind of look down down to this green field is to say, okay, well, what, what are the type of skills that we're going to have to meet? need to meet these demands for compliance and risk. And you're going to need a little bit of e-discovery, a little bit of cybersecurity, a little bit of that. So you can see these companies start kind of consolidating and pulling these people in from these different skill sets to start serving the new market. And switching gears for a second, um, I was wondering if maybe, and and I apologize to the cyber listeners, but uh, hoping you could dumb down maybe a day in the life um, as if you were talking to maybe a litigator or an e-discovery practitioner, what a day in the life of like a data breach response looks like, right? Assuming your your end client or the person who was breached is like a mid-size, mid-tier organization. We're not talking about the, you know, the Nikes or the Coca-Colas or the Walmarts of the world. We're talking about, you know, a mom and pop business that does maybe 10 million a year and has maybe an Office 365 installation for their email. And like you said, they still have a lot of on-prem storage and local devices. Like, what is that in the, from a practical sense, if you had to map out the steps that are involved to go from, hey, I've been hacked to what do I do next? And, and what are those steps going down that line? And how long do those things typically take? Yeah, and so there's the, that's a great question because, you know, the way that I look at it too, and coming from multiple disciplines in the past, kind of as kind of being a jack of all trades myself, is saying, you know, look, looking at it from that perspective of again, I don't care what we call the event to a certain degree. If it's a government inquiry, e discovery subpoena, if it's or a request, or if it's a data breach, something's happened in the environment, and we need to get the board together. You know, possibly people on the C suite, so maybe the CEO, CFO. CTO, CIO, in-house counsel, outside counsel, a lot of the players exist that are the same in the data breach world that you'll see in the litigation world. The difference is, is the operational tempo. In a data breach, you're out, you're going much quicker. Usually when an organization gets served on something for a government inquiry, you know, maybe a second request, there's I've worked on a number of those and it's a, it's a condensed timeline. You have to go through and pull a lot of data and do some investigations in a very short period of time. Take that and amplify it and amplify the anxiety that comes with it because you're worried about data exfiltration as opposed to producing data. And that's what a data breach is like. It's a lot like what you see in typical litigation, discovery and investigations. It's just at an amplified level and a condensed timeline. So it's working with a lot of the same personalities, but in, uh, in ways that you know, unfortunately, the anxiety is much higher because often we're trying to find out, okay, well, is there a level of attribution? Can we point the finger at somebody and say, hey, who did this? Often we can't. You know, there's attackers are very good at like hiding their tracks and obfuscating what they do. Um, but then it's trying to find out, okay, well, what data was touched? Because often when you go into government, uh, when you're in areas where there's government compliance, like OCR, or, uh, you know, Office of Civil Rights, and or HIPAA, and in and, and those divisions, to maybe state AGs, the clock is ticking. We've now discovered a data breach, and we're under a timeline to have to, um, you know, 
issue findings and say that portion of the investigation again where it might be different that if i get to if i'm working in the litigation world that i can say hey look you know we got this discovery request we have a three-month timeline worst comes to worst we can get into some motion practice and get into a pissing match over discovery we can fight over keywords and we can kick the can down the road and delay it as we get our arms around the data you don't have that luxury in a data breach often you you have nobody else you can really go after, you know, you know, fight with on this. It's some government entity that's asking for, hey, what's going on here? Who's been affected? Who do I have to notify in my state? Who do I have to notify? And you don't have a lot of wiggle room. You you can, as long as you're being responsive and working with them. And I guess that's that's another area where hey, I who do I who do I need to notify in my state? I think that's kind of important. Yeah. Oh like, yeah, and and you know, each state has different, you know qualities or, or different quantifications for what constitutes a record and who has to be notified. So again, in, in those, you, you can work with the AGs on that and the attorney generals to say, hey, look, here's what we're finding and it's communicating. And again, I, that's where I think there's litigators actually can do well in this kind of field, even coming from the legal side or folks that have worked in that that kind of contentious meet and confer and working, you know, there's, there's such a push in litigation to work with the other side about the data. The data is the data. And the same thing in data breaches. The data's there. Something happened. We got to, can't change it. There's no really, you know, we're not going to make some kind of, you know, assumption about the data. It's it's going to be what it is and we have to present it in a certain way. So the same thing happens in a data breach where you have to say, okay, we're going to have to work with maybe an attorney general or, or somebody in a compliance role to say, hey, look, here's what we're seeing. Maybe we don't have all the information, but as long as you're communicating and working with the other side, you're do, you're you're going to end up much better off. And are you yeah, seeing collaboration thing is huge? Well, because well, in, in the legal world, we can, you know, even in, with the government, right? So obviously, when working against opposing counsel, right, they've typically got a duty to produce, you know, to you and vice versa. So you're sort of incentive incentivized to work with one another, and everyone understands that it's a lot of information that we're pouring through. And at the end of the day, someone's putting eyes on some small subset of data. And when I say small, I think it's relative compared to what you started with. But I think it sounds like the same issues are at play here. But is the negotiation, you know, with the AGs? Because a lot of times, like you mentioned, HIPAA and protected entities and um, Office of Civil Rights, there have been countless articles that I've read where the Office of Civil Rights have been, you know, handing down these really hardcore fines for organizations that haven't, that didn't do like a, a full or a good faith effort in identifying the data that may have been breached and reaching out to their customers and or it didn't get done on time. I think in those situations, there was one where someone ran out some sort of 60-day clock. And it sounds like it's different for each state. Like, so if I'm a, let's say I'm a, I, I own a small business and I sell stuff on the internet and I have a bunch of my customers, their names, their addresses, and their credit card numbers on my server, and that gets hacked, but now I have 10,000 customers across 50 different states, right? Is the, are the rules different from state to state in terms of who needs to be notified about what and how quickly? And do you actually negotiate with 50 different state attorney generals in that situation when you're dealing with a 60-day clock to get notifications out? Yes, no, maybe so. Um, so unfortunately, every, every situation is kind of different. And it really depends on the context of the data. And this goes back to some of the things we were talking about early on about how we needed a, a greater push towards governance. The worst time that you want to be trying to figure out what data you have, the sensitivity of the data is in the middle of an investigation. It's in the middle of a data breach. It's in the middle of a litigation. Like you don't wanna be sorting through that data. Like you wanna have your arms around the data. And this is again, things we've been preaching about on the IG side of discovery and disputes for, you know, since 2004. Um, And same thing's happening in the data breaches is, hey, what do you have in, 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 you know, what's the sensitivity of that data? Because that quantifies where it has to be notified. Is it going to be HIPAA-related data? Um, are you a covered entity? Are you in a business associated agreement? Therefore, you have a certain set of uh, you know, rules that you have to follow. Um, are you, uh, you know, operating in certain states that you're taking financial information? Yes, there might be specific rules there, uh, depending on what type of business you are. 
And so you have to navigate all these different types of rules for the data classification that has been breached. And often you don't know what that data is or even get the arms around it until the breaches already happen. So often we find clients trying to do large scale uh, data mapping and governance introspection on their data with a 60 day timeline when normally I would push one of those things out if I was doing it as an assessment side, you know, maybe two to three months. So there, it really doesn't give them enough time to try to figure out what data they have while the house is burning down. But that's often where we see a lot of clients ending up. So from a practical perspective, picking, picking up from you've, you've gone in, you're the cyber guy, you go in, you've identified what's been touched, right? And I guess you copy that down and where do you take it from there? Right. You need, there's got to be some sort of, let's say you got a million documents that were pulled from a web server, right? Where, or a, an email server on the web, and there's hundreds of thousands or millions of emails going back and forth. There's potentially protected health information within that email set, no? Quite often. Credit card information, social security numbers, health information. If it's a, if a medical practice office, we see a number of those where it's, you know, the attackers are not going after hard targets. They're going after easy targets with a good amount of information and the ability to pay up if they have to do a ransomware, if they have to do, um, you know, if they have a good amount of data mining they can do. So attackers know how to go after the small and medium-sized businesses and particularly in healthcare and other verticals where they can get quality data. Um, and so what happens is once we identify that there has been a breach, it's going and outlining what's been touched to the best that we can, you know, using forensics to try to say, okay, well, Here's what we can determine has been touched, um, maybe downloaded or, or synced. And then we say, okay, say it's a full mailbox for a, a you know, the billing manager of a, uh, a medical office, full email gets synced off of Office 365. We see it in the logs. Boom. We're going to have to look at maybe five years of data and we have to filter through it because we know that entire email has been looked, looked at. Now, the problem was when we started going at this with clients, a, you know, a, a well, like a year ago, I started presenting this. I was presented with this problem from a lot of these folks that would say, hey, look, I don't know how we're going to go through all this email. You know, we have to basically try to figure out a way. And I'm like, well, how are you doing? Like, well, we're having to open it up or maybe loading it in Outlook and searching. I'm like, oh, that just sounds awful on so many levels. You're, you're now bringing in sensitive data into your maybe legal environment and searching it offhand. Um, and how do you know that there are being quality searches? Well, this is the only way to do it. And I said, well, this is a problem we, dis we we solved a need discovery like over a decade ago. Why don't we run it in the discovery processing and hosting tools? And the answer was, well, you know, we're not litigators. So I said, okay, stop. Let, let's get off that idea that, you know, litigators can only use something like Relativity or NuX or whatever they want to do to process and, and review the data. It's just a tool for data mining. So let's call it data mining. Let's just call it whatever we want. But it's a PII review, a data mining effort, and we can use these tools now that would have been developed and tested and vetted and well understood for over a decade can now be used in data breaches where we can actually tune them in, in ways to actually get out the results much faster, particularly when you're working on that 60-day deadline. Again, we're brought in early on. We detect that there's an investigation. By the time we're engaged, we do our investigation. Maybe a couple of weeks go, go by before we can say what data has been done. We're then having to download data, maybe gigabytes of data, process and host it. You know, we're running under very tight timelines. The e-discovery tools that were out there are a great solution for large, um, you know, these large data breach problems that are now new in the data breach world, but ex existed in litigation for a long time. And a great place where you can pull in people that, you know, we're not having to train up a bunch of people and say, hey, we're, we're going to apply new people to a new solution. Say, well, no, we'll use the ex existing staff that have been doing e-discovery and data review and document review for, for a decade. Let's just shift them a little bit, you know, tweak what they're doing, and we get great results. So, so it sounds you like, take that, like you take that huge data set down, you get it to a manageable set of, of documents that have PII and other personal information in it, and then you do, you're handing it off to a review team to then create, um, you know, a report that has all the personal information per person and is that the client deliverable? What does that, what does that goal look like for the client? And so it's, it's interesting. So the, the benefits that I've seen in do, let's say for example, we, we do something in like relativity and 
we can design a workflow and a process that can identify specific characteristics. We can even use analytics to pull out some of these, these types of records that have PII or health information or whatever it is that's the categories that we want. And maybe it's tax information and we can find a bunch of tax records um, that are similar and like, and we can cluster those and pull those together. We can then have people review and code those in a specific fields in some of these uh, discovery tools, like example, we use relativity and can actually have them code out all the fields, all the PII. Um, well, not, we actually don't want them to copy PII into these fields, but we can say, okay, here are the if in, impacted individuals, information about them, types of information that was compromised, and ultimately goes into a final review. And instead of producing like you would do with a traditional load file that you would produce to the other side after it's been screened for privilege and confidentiality, instead we can dump out information and reports from the review platform that can then be put into um, a format that then the breach vendors that send out all the notifications that you get when unfortunately when your your bank or financial institution or healthcare provider gets breached and you get a letter in the mail that says hey bad day we're going to give you a, a year free credit monitoring or whatever they they end up doing so those companies have specific formats and again we're on a tight deadline we can actually put it into their format within a day and then have them be able to start doing their mailing and notifications. So the deliverable, it's more of a report of impacted individuals, states that they are, um, the quantification of the data that, that they were, um, impacted by, you know, the, the, their data that was impacted. And we can actually then hold on to that, those marked records. So say, for example, you know, we, we issue a report to OCR, go to state attorney general's office. We can then archive this data in a review format. They can actually purge it from their systems if they don't want to keep it in email or places that they don't want the sensitive information. And we have a preservation copy that meets the legal obligations. Should there ever be a follow-up inquiry from the government or, uh, you know, some entity that says, Hey, look, or maybe even a plaintiff's lawsuit, you know, that could go into traditional litigation. It's a great way to say, hey, look, we have this in a format that can be reviewed. It's vetted. It's well understood. We've used this in litigation and government investigations for decades. Here's the process that we use to review the data. And it becomes a very defensible way that they can then uh, even provide those results to the other side for review. And at the end of the day, who's, who's paying for all this? Is it the organization? Uh, if they've, if they've chosen the self-insurance route. And so often what you see is there, there are, you know, cyber security insurance, uh, cyber risk insurance that, uh, organizations can get. Some of that might be covered. Uh, some of them pay out of pocket. So at some point, the, uh, the, the, you know, the organization that suffered the breach has to pay for it one way or the other. And so that's either through some kind of financial risk transference or out of their own pocket. And, you know, often they, uh, they probably pay more than they would doing these types of um, breach investigations and notifications, bringing in the breach council, the notification vendors, and all the other things that go into the fees of a breach by far way more than they would ever set, had if they'd just done um, you know, a good you know, governance review and risk review of their environment. So on a, on a good day, right? You find out you get hacked. Like, let's say I'm a dentist and I have an office with like 10 employees and all of our emails get hacked and a year's worth of information or a year's worth of emails from everybody in my company has been hacked. And we've had some pretty poor processes in place where we're emailing photos of people's insurance, um, you know, insurance information, healthcare information back and forth amongst ourselves. And like photos of people's driver's licenses or passports, right? It's going, so that gets out there. So now they call their insurance company. Insurance company recommends a cybersecurity consulting firm to go in and do the initial investigation and data mining. They recommend a data breach attorney that understands the laws from all 50 states. You get probably a, several boots on the ground to help you go in and do the digging. You're already at three or four very specialized professionals just within the first three or four days of this. And then once you do get the data down and you're dealing with thousands or hundreds of thousands of records, someone's got to go through and load all that stuff into these different tools, put eyes on it, identify, classify, and and categorize all that information, and then convert it to a report that a notification vendor can send out. And then there's the bill for the notification vendor. So it sounds like there's just a lot of hands in this, in this cookie jar. You got, your cyber consulting firms, your data breach law firms, 
um, forensics guys, data collection guys, data processing guys, database administration, document hosting guys. And this is before you have any real bits or bytes charges. And then you have a bunch of bodies putting eyes on the documents in a short period of time. So would it be unrealistic to say that you would need 20, 25, 30 people to to converge on this when it's time, when you do whittle it down to a small subset? Hey, it could be. Out in time? Yeah. I mean, and again, it's, it's all about, uh, as you, as you said earlier on, you know, kind of adjusting the levers and when you have huge data sets, um, often, again, we, 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 we want to kind of employ the, uh, the, you know, a good investigative mindset say, can we, can we reduce the data set? Can we knock it down and say within a reasonable degree of certainty, we know we can take this level of data off the table or it doesn't meet some kind of qualification. But in the end of the day, you know, that takes time in doing that. And while that clock is running out, um, sometimes it might say, hey, let's throw more bodies on it and start reviewing it. So it's very often you have to see, you know, for, for you know, even in a small compromise, you know, you can be dealing with, you know, tens of thousands of records um, very, very quickly. You know, if you think about an email and an email attachment, maybe multiple attachments, multiple pages, the time to review all that takes a considerable amount of time. So you have to kind of plan for that and, and start building those metrics to say, Okay, I'm going to extrapolate this out and say I have this many gigs of data. It's going to represent this many pages. This many pages are going to have to be reviewed, maybe responsive. And it can very easily have review teams of 10, 20 people, um, you know, on, on a small side. I mean, I think some of the smaller ones I've had have only had 12. <laughs> but the larger ones we've had, you know, go easily over 20 to, to try to go through that much of data in, in a very short period of time. Hey Doug, so you're you're hitting on something that I really want to touch on here uh, because you talked about how much human time is involved. Uh, but you know, especially in in discovery, I'm seeing machines doing more and more of the work, right? And it's kind of flowing from all the way downstream back up, and vice versa, really. I mean, how do you see automation starting to impact you know how much time, effort, and human uh, intervention you need? Uh, the cyber incident, you know, if you're able to start automating some of the mapping and some of the incident response, um, as well as some of the analysis and classification, right? So if you can automatically classify documents as they are uh, being created and maintained over the life cycle of the document, um, how how much can machines help here? Are we going to reach like an inflection point where machines will be hopefully doing more of the work than humans? Or are we still going to see, uh, you know, humans playing such a major role in cyber and uh, information governance moving forward, that machines are still just going to be kind of tools that are helping us do our job. I mean, there's there's no shortage of people doing stupid things that are going to keep us all occupied um, with work for the for the foreseeable future. So the and people still manage whatever controls we put in place. Somebody <laughs> will find a way to get around it. Unfortunately, I mean, it's it's a constant battle with the users. Um, and, and my hope is we get more user enablement so they actually take part in the security. But part of that is actually just making it invisible right. to them. And that's where I think, you know, where we start to see things that are built in inherently into the cloud platforms where there are DLP type solutions, where there's things that automatically flag people and say, hey, look, this person's uploading, in, you know, a, a large amount of credit card data into their email. Why? You know, flag that person, quarantine them. Um, you know, make it an issue that automatically creates workflows. You know, so there's this level of automation and orchestration that works with inside the organization that IT gets notified, HR gets notified, the person's manager gets notified, say, hey, look, we have a problem. Um, you know, not to get people in trouble, say, look, you know, this, this is a risk with inside the organization. How are we going to deal with it? And so the more of that stuff that exists, I think are, is going to be beneficial. Is it ever going to be perfect? No. And again, people are always going to find ways to circumvent mm -hmm. the controls we put in place for them. Um, even if we try to make it transparent to them. But at the end of the day, it's definitely going, we're going in the right direction. And I think we're at this kind of uh, critical mass point of where we're going to finally start seeing a lot of the things that I've hoped for in security and IT for you know, decades now, you know, for close to 30 years, start to actually start to be able to be put in place uh, at ways that we were never able to do before across the board. So go out and I was going to say, you such a good point that you need. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, my turn. Uh, <laughs> go out on a bit of a limb for me. And with these, you know, with people migrating to the cloud and with all these, you know, machine learning technologies being baked in behind the scenes, do you feel that there is the potential to create a large enough sample set or data set? 
for like the Azures of the world and the AWSs to be able to learn over time. Like I'm talking like deep learning five, 10 years out, um, learn over time, you know, Hey, this is a private equity group. These are the data loss prevention classification labels that we want to apply to their data and basically have a template set up and it does most of that classification for us. Or do you think it's still going to require somebody, you know, with a human brain to step in and say, look, this is, you know, this gets us maybe 60% of the way there, but there's still a mountain of work that needs to be done. I mean, if you had to project and paint with a magic wand, what the future would look like almost to the sci-fi realm, I mean, what do you think is feasible or realistic, I should yeah, so a lot of those policies and templates exist already. And again, you can get into a lot of the cloud stacks that already have that. They have the ability to automatically tag and classify data, put expirations around them. You, know, you can build in certain retention policies, data classification policies, and do that taxonomy as documents are created. You can do that right off the bat now. You can do that in things like SharePoint, and you can build that in. You can have DLP controls. You can put a bunch of restrictions in your, you know, your RBAC or your role-based access controls around that data. The problem is, is that what I'm seeing in the, in, in the industry is that not a lot of people know how to properly implement that. And so what's happening is you're kind of giving guns to monkeys where they're telling people, hey, look, migrate all your stuff to Office 365. You know, put, just put it in the cloud. And the administration of it is amazingly easy for email. Um, you can set up users. You can just check boxes and get them going. And you don't need to know Exchange. You don't need to know messaging. You don't need to have to set up a CAS and all this front-end crap and clustering. Like you don't need to know any of that. You can just turn on a box, or, or you know, turn on, a, open up a web browser and start clicking boxes and turning turning people on to email. The challenge is it's very easy to also make somebody a global administrator with just one click of a button. And so people don't know how to really set it up properly. So while they're they're migrating into this, they get into dangerous territory because they don't configure it right. The other aspect that compounds that is you have folks like Microsoft that'll sit there and sell you SharePoint, Office 365, Azure, whatever they want to call that whole ecosystem. But it's almost like you go into a restaurant and you say, hey, I'd like a steak. And waiter comes back and brings you a cow and you say, no, sorry, I wanted a steak. And they go, yeah, you just got to cut it out and cook it. And I was like, no, that's why I came here. I expected this all to be done. And unfortunately, with a lot of these cloud solutions, as great as they sound on face value, they're not out-of-the-box solutions. So unless they're configured right, you're not going to get the type of uh, benefits that you expect from it. And so that's where I see the challenge being, if we can get over that now, we can get more people kind of configuring and implementing these solutions right at the get-go, it will create that automation, will create that um, ability to have that, that orchestration down the road. That would be great if we can make that happen now. But that's how we have to get to that five-year projection uh, saying, can this all be perfect? Not perfect, but it can be damn near close if things are set up properly now. You think we'll still have the flexibility and we'll protect against uh, the stupid things that we still do? Or you think that's just inherent within our nature? We're gonna, if there's some new toy, we're going to find a way to break it. You always find a new Humans way to break always it. always break things, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> We're always breaking things, but that's, but you don't want to get rid of that. Like I, I want people to constantly test that, break things, try to get around. I, I, I don't want, I mean, that's, you know, that's how we, we vet things from the bad people. You know, the people that we don't, you know, we don't want doing things uh, against our environments is we, sometimes we want our users to try to break things and go, Oh, okay. Now I see what's happening. Hell, that's one of the things I almost ask most people in security to spend maybe a week, a year writing help desk tickets, see what the users are doing, see where the real problems lie, build those metrics and understand, Hey, wow, this is a, this is a, you know, ultimately it's a user problem. And how do we, how do we build in systems that again, give them automated security uh, without disrupting their workflows and so often you have to kind of see how that's going. And it's really the job of most security practitioners to spend the time to protect the organization from the users. It's, it's going to be them and even their administrators and their general user population that either do misconfigurations, stupid things, click on things, can't demonize them, but you have to build ways to protect that to not allow them to shoot themselves in the foot. Did you hear that, Ricky? You got a year of help yeah. desk tickets in your future. I Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I'll tell you what, so many of the things that uh, Doug was saying on a corporate level, you deal with, you know, with corporates, corporations, and as well as individuals in the discovery where you just look and you're like, did you not think about looking at how many backups you had? 
Or, you know, did you not think about configuring some kind of auto-deletion policy or putting them in a retention policy? Um, because, you know, there is a lot of, there's a lot of mistakes made with data. Let's just put it that way. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for education and growth in this area um, to really embrace security and get to where we need to be um, in the security landscape, both corporations and individuals alike. And it starts with individuals, right? Because if individuals don't start adopting better security policies and more awareness and becoming better data stores, the companies are never going to get there. No matter how much education they, they pound down their throats, it all starts with, you know, user training. So. Yeah, in in the question, Doug, of, I, well, I was going to say the the one thing to add to that is you know the the one thing that I've asked a lot of organizations, both on the breach side and the litigation side, is why do you still have this data? <laughs> and it's a it's right. a it's a right. governance front, and that's where I think folks that have been in e discovery and litigation support can very easily kind of make that transition into cybersecurity because they know they've seen where the proverbial crap hits the fan. They know where bad things have happened because they've seen it in litigation. And again, it's the same thing that you see in data breaches. It's data that is usually not secured. It's data that has been held on for much too long past its expiration and business value period that sits on a network and then gets gets breached. And it's the same thing that happens in e-discovery. It's like, why do you have this data? It's potentially responsive. We're going to have to go through this now. It fits the time frame. It fits the criteria. It's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Why do you have that? So it's the same type of problem that exists organizationally is people that hold on to data and don't have the proper types of uh, governance and risk controls around it. Doug, this is awesome. I know, uh, again, some of your listeners probably, this is going to be old hat, but I know for guys like Ricky and myself that have been, you know, in the e-discovery in the legal space, you know, not so much, uh, I don't think either of us came from an IT background. We sort of fell into legal and diverged and specialized within it and found ourselves in this weird little sub-niche. Um, I don't, I do not remember waking up as a young kid saying, I want to be in data discovery when I grow up, but somehow we found this cool little puzzle here. Um, really love the fact that you've been able to, you know, let us hijack your podcast and point the microphone at you. I mean, if there were any sort of parting shots or words of wisdom you can give to the folks on our side of the fence in terms of places that they could start to get a real base level understanding, or at least start learning what the right questions are, where would you point them? in general. Yeah, tons of great resources on the internet. Um, obviously, uh, there's there's a lot of folks that are out there on social media and Twitter and LinkedIn that you can follow. A lot of the folks that have been on, uh, to be kind of shamelessly self-promoting, and some of the folks that have been on my podcast to really kind of listen to some of the leaders in the industry, you'll hear a lot of commonalities of people talking about this, the soft skills that you have to learn, communications, writing skills. Again, one of the best Cybersecurity books that I, I can recommend people get is the AP Style of Guide, or, or Style Guide. It's like how to, how to really write well becomes extremely important in, in grammar. I mean, you got to look at your audience. Whether it's you're coming from the litigation world and you're used to dealing with attorneys, if you can write and communicate well, you're going to be dealing with the C-suite. You're going to be dealing with CIOs, CISOs, CTOs, CEOs, C whoever, and you need to be able to communicate to them cleanly, effectively, clearly. And if you're not able to do that, that's going to hurt you. So that it becomes such an important skill um, that you can never stop learning. And so it's like, I really, I, as you're doing stuff now, as you're writing emails, think about how you're writing and communicating. Say, hey, if I had to write this to somebody in a C-suite, how would this go? And just practice that skill. That's something that you can do at any time. Um, again, follow some of the folks that I've mentioned that have been on the podcast. Look at, you know, look, kind of look at their, their bios and histories. Really interesting to see where they've come and just listen to what they say. I, I pick these people because I, I consider them thought leaders in the industry and to get that information to a lot of people that are entering the industry. They share a lot of information. There's organizations like SANS. So SANS.org has a tremendous amount of information, white papers, training, conferences, things that are constantly going on. Um, you know, their training's not cheap, but it's very, it's the best that I, that I've been able to find. Um, there are great things to kind of go look at and kind of pick out again, some of those baseline certifications that you want to look at. And ultimately I think if people really spend the time to really, um, you know, again, I think the new, the new area, if you want to plan ahead is set up and, you know, set up some of these free cloud tenants in Azure and AWS, start learning those, um, learning how they're set up and configured, how their security groups look, how their access control uh, lists are set up. Understand how all that's configured. 
is going to be where a lot of the market's going. I would love for people to say, hey, I really want them to know how to set up a Fortinet firewall or Palo Alto firewalls. It's less important now, unfortunately. Well, fortunately and unfortunately. I mean, it's it's unfortunate for me, but a lot of the brain space that I have for things about firewall configurations may not be as effective as uh, risk mitigation factors than all the new stuff I now have to learn in Office 365. So that's why I encourage people to go out there and learn these things. There's tons of free courses out there from Udemy and all these other different courses online where, you, hell, even YouTube, where you can pick up a lot of this information. Things like if you want to learn penetration testing, Kali Linux, you can go into offensive security, pick up their VM of that and start hacking away. Please only hack on your own systems. Don't hack <laughs> external uh, systems that are you don't have authorization to, but you can set up virtual labs very easily now. The compute power you can buy either in your home or put it in the cloud, you can start testing um, some of your penetration testing skills. So there's a lot of information that's out there uh, for free. And I think people that are entering the industry now have kind of a leg up on people that have been in it for some time because we're all having to learn some of the new skills, like I said, in the cloud. But you also have the ability to actually get into it for a very low cost where I had to buy actually lots of computers in the, in, in the old days before virtualization and cloud. You can now jump into it for, for almost a zero cost barrier of entry. All right. One follow-up question and then I'll, I'll let Ricky run with it. and Maybe we should probably start wrapping this up. But um, more of a existential question because uh, I may be – going down the path of actually growing up and becoming an adult in the near future, you know, starting a family, actually getting married, all that good stuff. Um, knowing what you know now and, and being a father yourself, knowing that the kids are basically coming out of the womb these days with an iPad glued to their hands, what would you start exposing the, you know, children to at a young age? Because I feel like what I'm seeing, especially with like my nieces and nephews that are in their late teens, um, a big difference between what I see in them and what I saw in ourselves, you know, and around the same age, you know, time frame, was that we all wanted to tinker and figure out how this stuff worked, right? Like I got, I got jazz back in the day just from memorizing all the DTMF codes so that I can actually dial, you know, a bullet into a bulletin board system in Denmark from, you know, my 2400 baud modem. And now these kids come, you know, the smartphones are connected all the time. You ask them, how do you connect to the internet? And they're like, what do you mean? How do I connect? It's just on it. What information, what, what sort of things would you start teaching children at a young age so that they can be a bit more inquisitive and, and curious and start tinkering and building those skills early on in life? Yeah, a lot of there's a lot of things that are now focused on getting kids uh, involved in coding. There's girls who code. Um, there's Scratch, which is a, a coding program put out by MIT for kids learning to code. Um, there's tons of maker spaces um, that are in most organ uh, communities now. So it's actually getting people like figuring out the puzzles, putting things together, breaking things, putting them apart. You, know, you don't want to lose the tactical, tactile function of, of actually picking something up and breaking it. Um, and so there's a lot of ability to do that now. It's just getting that kind of mindset working, but working with their hands, pulling things apart. That still exists. I still think it's very important. There's a couple of programs out there now where I think a couple of them start on um, Kickstarter, but I think are now, and I've seen it even in Target where you can like build your own computer and then do stuff with Scratch. There's Raspberry Pis. There's all these different little things that kids can tinker with. And you find most kids, as much as they love the screen time, they do like building puzzles. They like taking things apart. Uh, my daughter's constantly taking, you know, cardboard boxes and making them into different things. Same thing as we did when we were kids. That mentality doesn't leave, um, you know, hasn't left the zeitgeist of humanity yet. So we still have this ability to kind of foster that. And that's where you get kids tinkering with things. So I, that's where I'd start plugging them in on a lot of those early technical things that they can still actually physically take apart and put back together. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. I, uh, when I have kids, they are definitely going to still be breaking stuff. I can promise you that physical stuff. I will definitely let them toy around and think with raspberry Pis, but I will still have them be uh, breaking physical stuff. Um, I, I have one one question here. You know, I want to kind of push the barrier just a little bit further and and talk about crypto for a second. Where 
uh, cyber fits in with cryptocurrency. Um, you know, cryptocurrency is really starting to hit the mainstream and it's not really just a dark web payments thing anymore. Um, and regulation is starting to be put in place and soon enough, it's going to penetrate the legal industry. Um, you know, you're going to see lawsuits all the time about missing Bitcoins or Ethereum going, uh, you know, to the wrong recipient and, and needing to be rerouted. How is cyber going to help um, or help shape where crypto is going in the future um, from what we've learned right now um, as to how how important it is to protect the data and how it's going to lay the foundation for where crypto is going in the future. Well, hopefully it adds some transparency to what it really is and what it means. Um, you know, I still think it is the, very much the, the wild west when it comes to cryptocurrencies. You know, people don't understand that while regulated currencies that have been around for hundreds of years globally serve a purpose, you know, there's, there is some recourse that you have that should, you know, the payments go out to the wrong people, you know, there's things you can kind of do, you know, when you're in only the, um, the crypto world and everything's anonymous becomes exceedingly difficult. So I think what's going to happen is, is building the ability for people to kind of use this technology, but still have accountability and transparency. I think that's where cybersecurity can be put in place where it can put the right controls around it. You can still maintain some level of value. You can put an, uh, People could be anonymous around it if they want to, but you still need the ability to have recourse for for issues that that come up. You know, you, you need some some accountability. So I think that's where cybersecurity can uh, can still have a, a big play. Well, Doug, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for letting us uh, wonderful. Yeah, pepper you with questions, and and you've been pretty patient with us. <laughs> Always it, no, I, I this I think this is a great format. Look, in a day when we when we we kind of start, three of us started talking about the idea of this podcast is is that idea that there's there's a huge overlap in skills and talents uh, when it comes to folks that have been in litigation support and need discovery for the past twelve years. Again, they, they bring a lot to the table, and often I think a lot of the folks that are in that industry have felt jaded and where do they go? Well, there's a lot that can be done in cybersecurity, and I think again, cybersecurity's been a little bit had their nose turned up to folks in the discovery world and litigation support world for too long. I, I remember dealing with, with a gentleman that was head of one of the larger banks, uh, cyber teams and, and red teams. And he's asking what I was doing at a, on a particular project. I was like, you know, I do some doing some forensics and data mining around some, uh, and this is, you know, almost 10 years ago, but you know, around e discovery is like, Oh, so you just you just collect emails. I was like, well, it was a little bit different than that. We were, you know, it was an investigation. He goes, yeah, you're just a you're just a you're just a data jockey. I'm like, that's not accurate. But it was just that attitude of, in the cybersecurity world of oh, those those legal people and those people that deal in the in the, in the legal world of, of security, screw them. And I think that mentality's got to go away. And it's the only way that we can become more open to the folks that have been in other industries to meet some of those, uh, t- you know, the basically the headcount gap that we have and bring in the right people. So. Hopefully this will spur some of the conversations with folks within both communities and see how we're we're all not that different. Again, it's just data. Some corporation has data that they they're going to have to know what happened to it and maybe produce it or investigate it at some point. That's all all it comes down to. Well, here's hoping uh, we spurred some new conversation. Thanks a lot, Doug. This has been awesome. Hope, uh, hope you let us come back one day after we've learned a thing or two. Uh, for sure. Guys, I, I really greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks a lot, Doug. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.